Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You are listening to The Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Chocolate to savour. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Well, as you know, we joined Instagram. So please go there, follow us at IT Women's Podcast and leave us a message if you like. And also keep those emails coming to the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. We love hearing from our listeners all over the world. We've gone so much more international since this pandemic. And it's great to hear your stories from wherever you are. On this episode, we're going to talk about sex and intimacy with the woman responsible for choreographing the powerful sex scenes that moved so many of us so deeply and got a good few knickers in a twist when people talked to Joe on Liveline. Ita O'Brien is the intimacy coordinator who was integral to those glorious scenes. I absolutely love the beat also that you come back after they've first taken their clothes off and they're just standing opposite each other. And then I also love, which I think in a way is more, you know, sort of hasn't been seen so much as then him reaching forward and pleasuring her and seeing her receiving that. And then that reciprocated her reaching forward and pleasuring him and seeing his pleasure. I love that moment. We'll hear much more from Ita O'Brien in a moment about normal people, Connell's chain, and why some directors are not quite so keen to have someone like her on set. But first, one of those lovely emails from listeners, and this one comes from Karen. I hope you'll indulge us. It's really possibly the most, the nicest email we've ever had in. Hi, Roisin, Kathy, and everyone who makes the women's podcast what it is. I thought I would take this moment to congratulate you on your 400th episode, however belated I am, and write you a note of thanks. I first started listening to the women's podcast in 2016 when I was living in Paris as an antidote to homesickness. I found the familiarity of the Irish voices soothing and the way in which you addressed topics, feminist and otherwise, made me feel like I was sitting around a table with a cup of tea, having an intimate conversation with friends. You gave expression to the female experience in a way that I had not heard on public radio or podcasts before. And since then, I've been an avid listener and I look forward to every Monday and Thursday when I know there's a new chapter waiting for me to relish. Your voices have become a staple of my life, sifting through my ears when I moved to India, where I studied, worked and even joined an ashram. The podcast is what has tethered me to Ireland. I experienced the same awakening during Waking the Feminists. I felt the same anxious anticipation during the run-up to Repeal the Eighth, which your podcast covered so beautifully and so thoroughly. I rejoiced when it was repealed and you gave such a powerful speech, loaded with emotion. I suffered the gut-wrenching sadness of the murder of Anna Quijal and the subsequent trial. 
I now live in London and during this pandemic, your coverage has provided me with solace, that same sense of familiarity and security that I crave during an otherwise turbulent time. These are major events which I have listened to from afar, but yet feel so close to. These, of course, have been interspersed with the book clubs. I always look forward to what your mother Anne has to say. The comedians, Alison Spittle and Joanne McNally had me in stitches. The new writers and the old, Margaret Atwood being a firm favourite always. The beauty tips and the gossip. I applaud you for setting the bar so high and managing to keep it there consistently for 400 episodes. That is no small feat. My mother said there's always one presenter who you listen to throughout your life and who becomes like a dear friend. For her, it was the late Marion Finucane. For me, it is you. When moving to London and securing a permanent job, I subscribed to the Irish Times, mostly because I think that your work on these podcasts is so valuable. Keep doing what you're doing and I'll keep listening. Hoping you and yours continue to stay safe and well during this time. My thanks, Karen O'Neill. We really hope you don't mind us reading out that email. It was just it's just so amazing when we get feedback that shows us that what we are doing is resonating with you, the listeners. So as self-indulgent as it might be, we wanted to share that with you because I hope some of you also agree with what Karen says. And thank you so much, Karen, for those gorgeous words. Now, there are many layers to Marianne and Connell, the two main characters in Normal People, but there's no doubt what was truly groundbreaking for Irish television has been the sex between these two young lovers. There's been an awful lot of it. It's been graphic, but never gratuitous, and it has underpinned and enhanced the storyline. And in that process, it's become quite the talking point. This all has not happened by accident, so we were delighted when Intimacy Coordinator Ita O'Brien accepted our invitation to discuss her work on the adaptation of Sally Rooney's wonderful novel. If you're a Normal People fan, you're going to be fascinated by this, but even if you're not, it's a really interesting glimpse behind the scenes at a fairly new part of film and television making. She's worked on Sex Education and Gentleman Jack, as well as Normal People, doing the same job with actors on those sets. Here she is. Isha O'Brien. Isha, thank you very much for joining us on the Women's Podcast. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became something called an intimacy coordinator? So I actually started dancing at the age of three. My mum is from Cookstown County, Tyrone. She came across to London to do her midwifery training when she was 24. And my dad is from Clomel and Tipperary and his dad was a horse trainer. And he came across because his dad had hurt his back to England. He was about 10 so my parents met at the Irish dances. My mum wanted me to do Irish dancing, but there wasn't any. So they sent me to Miss Handel in Hayes. And then the school that I went to had a most amazing ballet teacher called Madeline Sharp, who actually was the Royal Academy of Dancing's top children's teacher. She had taught amazing people like Beryl Gray. So, yeah, so I danced from, like I say, from the age of three. I ended up training. Um, I went to Bush Davis and then I worked as a musical theatre dancer for 10 years and then got inspired to take that emotional journey further. So I trained at Bristol Vic as an actor and worked as an actor for eight years. And then as my kids were young, not wanting to travel around the country, so sought to sort of, I actually sought to do a teacher's training and found the MA in Movement Studies at Central School of Speech and Drama. So I did that MA to train to be a movement teacher and a movement director, which combined all my skills of dancing and acting so I've been working as a movement teacher, movement director since 2007. And then I started writing my own work. So I put my, my own piece in 2009 and then looked at taking that work on and exploring 
more of an abstract piece looking at the dynamic of the relationship between the perpetrator and the victim. And in that exploration, I was looking at how I, as the facilitator, would keep my actors safe, what practices and principles I needed to put in place in the rehearsal process to have my actors been able to be come in, to be present, centered, grounded, to be able to enter into that work in a really conscious and present way. And then at the end of the rehearsal day and at the end of the whole process to again leave being sent, present, centered and grounded. And while I was developing that work, so I did two rounds of research and development in 2014 and then 2015, while I did it at the Barbican Pit. One of my fellow movement directors and movement teachers, Meredith Dufton, who's the head of movement at Mountview, said, I have to note all the intimate content that my students are asked to do. Invariably, the physicality doesn't tell the right story. And when I do talk to them about what they should be portraying, their faces go blank because there is no structure or professional process through which they can create that intimate content. So she said, please come and teach what you're developing. And so then I also co-worked in conjunction with Vanessa Ewan, who'd already had the inspiration of watching a fight call and seeing the time and space that was given to creating and choreographing a fight, making sure there's techniques put in place. And she was going, that's what we need for intimacy. So Vanessa is one of the senior lecturers in movement at Central. So there's a collaboration of all those people. So I started teaching the work in April 2015 and honed the work, was making it sort of more streamlined. And then the students were saying to me, this is all great in drama schools. What about when we're in the profession? So then I contacted Equity early in 2017 and said, please, can I come and share what I was developing? I shared the work to the Personal Managers Association, which is the group of agents in June of 2017. And then Weinstein happened. And yeah, and then subsequently, you know, the industry going, yes, this is not right. We have to do better. Time's up movement, you know, sort of supporting that, um, that change in the industry and the Me Too movement happening. And then the subsequent codes of conduct. Um, within then, you know, the industry creating their codes of conduct, it was then and how now within the shift of awareness of needing to do better, how do you do the intimate content? And I was there to say, here, here is the intimacy onset guidelines. Here is a process by which we bring a skill. Um, we bring open communication and transparency. We bring agreement and consent of touch. And we bring a clear choreography to the intimate content to work in a professional way. It's just such a fascinating move how your life went from ballet and dancing into this. I'm really curious about what you found when you started working on sets, because when you talk about it and you think about the choreography required for for sex scenes and all that kind of thing, it seems kind of obvious that you would need to have somebody managing that particular quite unique um, part of of a production. But there wasn't anyone, was there? I mean, it was the actors were left up to their own devices. That's right. So I have a theory. So there's a couple of things. First of all, people just are not comfortable in talking about the intimate content. And um, before having a professional structure, there was that no man's land of talking about it. And are they talking about themselves? Do they bring their own experiences into it? And so in that uncomfortable place of not having a professional structure within which to consider the intimate content, it was left, as you say, in this no man's land. And then the other aspect is that a production and a director will be very clear that they do not know, say, they're going to work on Queen Elizabeth I. They don't know how to do a galliard. They're going to bring in a movement a, a choreographer. They're going to teach the, um, the choreography. They're going to teach the dancers. They're going to teach the actors. And they're going to integrate it into why that scene is there within this film or TV series. So it's really clear there's a technique. If you're going to do a fight, 
you know, if you're going to have a sword play, again, it's really clear that you need someone with a skill, a risk assessment, bringing in safety equipment and bringing in techniques to do that physical dance. The thing with intimacy is that the inference is everybody does intimacy. We all hug, we all kiss, we all have sex, supposedly. And so there isn't a practitioner that has an added extra skill. But of course, what that is ignoring or not dealing with or wasn't being made conscious of that, of course, just as with a fight, there is a risk. And the risk isn't just physical, but can be emotional and psychological. Someone's personal and private intimate body is at play and someone's degree of nudity, which absolutely makes someone vulnerable. So they have to take care of that risk. And then when you go into this movement, we want to do this character's intimate content. We want to serve this storytelling. We all have our own personal expressions, but the intimate expression that's needed for this character can be worlds apart from you know who you are in your personal and private intimate life. And then it is a body dance. You have two, three, four, however many people are going to be in this intimate scene, bodies moving together. There's a rhythm, there's a journey, there's a storytelling, there's beats to be served. And then there's choreography and techniques that can be brought in order to make it believable, just like a fight, to make it safe, to separate out what has been merged before, you know, taking care of the actor's personal and private body through agreement and consent. That's agreement and consent of simulated sexual content, nudity and touch. All of those aspects need to be considered. And so then that then that everything that is within the actor's agreement and consent can be then worked with and, and that's what you can play with freely. Um, so the actor can bring all of their skill as the actor to the intimate content. But before the role of the intimacy coordinator, all of that was just left in this no man's land. So I know you had a very good experience on normal people and I'm dying to talk to you about that because I'm absolutely loving it. I've been savouring it. I haven't binged it. So I'm, I think I'm episode eight and I don't want it to end. I've just found it a really very moving, beautiful experience watching it, I have to say. And that's very much to do with all your work, I think. But before we talk about that good experience, can you tell me about when you started on sets and the kind of things that you were trying to help the actors with and the directors with, but that maybe there was some resistance to? And tell me about some of those experiences. Absolutely. So in the first place, just as I've described, time, particularly on set, time is money. And before now, it was like, well, we don't deal with the intimate content and then we just do it on the day. And within that mindset, there wasn't that, you know, so what I was inviting is, uh-uh, you've got to shift completely. Just like a dance or a fight, you know that you're going to speak to your stunt coordinator. You're going to put in place safety mechanisms. You're going to make time for rehearsal. And then you know that all of that means you're going to have a really good scene that's serving what you want before you put it in front of the camera. So, so helping producers and the whole of the production process to understand that shift. And then... You know, and as Lenny himself was, um, was sharing when he's spoken about the work, you know, that before he met me, he was sceptical. And, you know, as I'm, you know, so lovely, one of my really close um, friends who we've now known each other for 20 years, she's a director on film. When I first start, spoke to her about the work, she said, but I don't want you coming in at that point that's the most intimate culmination of this storytelling to then take over. And again, so that's the, the concern and the fear of directors. And of course, I'm going, oh, again, just shift your mind. You don't think of the stunt coordinator coming in and taking over. Again, I'm working in conjunction. I'm inviting and being present with that open communication from the get-go. You know, I met Lenny and the beautiful producers, Catherine McGee and Catherine Dunn, line producer, back in January 
opening up that conversation and then the conversation keeps going with Lenny, with the actors. So that's everything's known. And then the structure that we're putting in place, again, is just stepping back and creating a professional structure within which the actors then, from the open communication, have that space and time to have agreement and consent of what can be in play on that day. And then the clear choreography that's all in service of the director's vision. Everything that I do, you know, I talk to the director first, say, what is your vision for the scene? I make sure that the director speaks to the actors then next. It's no good me talking to the actors before the director because it's his or her vision. Only then, once that's signed off, will I then check in and find out what the actors are happy with and then check in with wardrobe. Wardrobe have been the experts up until now. They absolutely have been the department that has shorn up the actors. The actors will come on the day before there was this structure put in place going, oh my God, I've got a sex scene today and what do I have to wear and help? And of course, the wardrobe people are absolutely brilliant and I work very closely with them. You know, really work in conjunction with their expertise of how to support and hold the actors and then checking in with the, the first AD to hold a closed set. I was asking about the, some of the more surprising or negative things that you've seen oh, because you had such a wonderful time on Normal People, which we'll get to soon. But yeah, just about some of the things that were horrible that you were surprised to see. So, you know, again, directors who just don't want to engage, that feel that it is imposing on them. I've been told by producers, don't um, speak to the director, only go through the first AD, check in with the actors, help us to create the nudity waivers, and then stand back and don't do anything. And I'm saying, well, we need, you know, there has to be agreement and consent of touch. That is a bottom line for me as an intimacy coordinator on set. If that structure is not there, then we cannot be supporting and making sure that the actors are actually working with best practice or at least working in a way that's not going to make them vulnerable. And then the next bit is actually understanding that we bring a skill as choreographers, as movement people to the intimate content. Yeah, so when directors don't understand that, they don't understand actually how we're there to support them. It's so hard when when I'm told, no, stand back, don't do anything. No, I don't want to rehearse it. And and it's just wave the actor saying, oh, just let them act it. Yeah. And have you heard um, directors say things to actors that have been a bit shocking or unpleasant to hear? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I was thinking about the rogering um, thing. Do you know somebody saying, give her a good rogering? So, yeah, that was on... um, Again, on, on, on a, I didn't actually work on this one. I was one of my fellow intimacy coordinators. Yeah, quite a streetwise film, you know, a, a director that's, you know, sort of quite a raw person. Yeah, and just using that very colloquial and very sort of quite aggressive language regarding the journey of intercourse, you know, give it a good rodring, harder, harder, you know, do it faster, you know, and that kind of language does not help to support a professional's workplace. And, you know, it could be feel quite degrading to the actor. I've had a situation where a director's wanted to change, so we have actually rehearsed a scene, and directors wanted to change the choreography on the day, and the, the director said, oh, we you better check out with the actress. So I checked out with the actress, and the actress has been fine. But I've gone to the actor, and the actor's gone, oh, and he's so tense, and he's going, it really makes me uncomfortable, I really want to stick to what I've rehearsed, I really need to know what I'm doing. And so I go to the director, and the director says, oh, for goodness sake, call himself an actor. But while we go oh, to that, that's just, it's just so natural. Oh, it's just been so inherent within our business. The two things of like, oh, if an actor's brave, mm. your actor should be brave and actors should be able to do any degree of nudity and any degree of intimate content. And that confluates, that you know, merges so many misnomers. Actors are brave. Actors do take on 
emotional stories to reflect our humanity. You know, look at Connell talking about, or on Paul talking about the scenes with the counsellor and where he had to go to to really embody that, to take himself to an edge, to honour everybody who truly um, in life um, experiences that degree of, of depression. So just because an actor is, is exploring human emotional stories does not mean that every actor has a comfortability with their body that means they're happy to be completely naked or they're comfortable with, with all simulated sexual content or touch. We don't know, you know, and it, nor do we need to know what someone's relationship is with their nudity or their touch leading up to a point where they come and do the job. And just because someone doesn't want a particular body part touched or isn't comfortable with certain nudity of their body does not mean that they are not an excellent actor and, in fact, the best actor for that job. But again, before now, there wasn't a professional structure put in place that allowed for that communication to happen in a professional way, you know, really respecting the actor's boundaries of their personal body so that then they could stay bringing the best of their amazing skill as an actor to the intimate content. And, and in that place, you know, you have so many abuses of, of directors. Oh, so one of my actors, um, she spoke about agreeing that she wouldn't take her bra off, that she would, you know, remain with that. And then in the scene, the director goes, oh, I keep catching the bra, just take it off. Yeah. And suddenly in an instant, in that instant, that actor is going from doing a job where she feels within what she's agreed and consented to, to suddenly being pushed, being flipped into that place of being vulnerable. And then if she doesn't take it off, then there's that thing of she's not saying yes, she's not being a, a you know, an agreeable actor in fear of being called a troublemaker or a diva. But then in the act of, of complying, she's suddenly incredibly vulnerable and everything that goes with that makes her feel from being awkward to feeling vulnerable to feeling, you know, abused or harassed. Um, and that's what has happened in the past. You are listening to The Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Discover a different kind of dark. Well, take us to the set of Normal People, because we're all dying to know. We're all still watching it and loving it. Give us a, a sense of your daily sort of practice there, in what it involved with Paul and Daisy Edgar-Jones and um, making sure that the that you honoured the beautiful and important part of sex and intimacy in Sally Rooney's writing. And um, I really love that Lenny's been upfront about being sceptical about you. So I'm, I'm also interested in kind of how you saw his... Um, I suppose confidence in you grow and realise how important it was that you were there to choreograph this, just as if he had, he probably had a sports person in to do the GAA scenes, I imagine. <laughs> My first meeting with Lenny, I actually came across to Dublin to to run a, a session for the Irish Theatre Institute. And uh, I, I did actually, I uh, like five, six days and also with Bow Street Film School. And I phoned, you know, Catherine McGee up and said, look, I'm here in Dublin, let me come and meet you. So it was a really lovely meeting. And I did have that sense of Lenny, you know, hearing the whole focus is we're serving the director's vision and all of us as professionals, the producers, the um, director, the actors, cinematographer, we're all serving the writing. And of course, what was um, so beautiful and I think gave such a focus and a pinpoint of a cohesion for the whole production um, and for every single practitioner was that the book was already out there. It was already loved. Everybody across the board, as far as I can see, and certainly everybody that I came in contact with had read the novel. And so there's, there was that sense of honouring that. And then the fact that then Sally then was absolutely an integral part in then doing the adaptation and, you know, how completely, you know, the, you know, the absolute text is lifted pretty much into the screenplay. So there was a real sense of honouring the beauty that was Sally's, you know, was, was the writing that, that everybody was serving. And then from there, within that, again, as I've described, open communication, clear conversations with Lenny, 
coming in a rehearsal period, having a you know a session with Lenny, um, Paul and Daisy, sharing the work, working on a scene in rehearsal clothes so they understood the process, that already given confidence and um, professionalism to how we were going to approach the scenes. And then the flow of a day is, is always, you know, I've always have checked in with Lenny, checked in with the actors the night before. I will again sort of check in with Lenny or Hetty um, like getting to set sort of at the breakfast time. So um, again, because things can shift and change, ideas can shift and change. Checking in with both actors before we get to set. Again, just going, how are you today? Any concerns? So that everything's known so that we can all come you know, it's a leveller. We're all working with everything now. And so then we can all just hit the ground running. And then when it comes to the actual director rehearsal, it's really important that I'm there listening. I'm part of that conversation, just like the script supervisor where we're present in the room. But that's their creation. That's the director, the actors talking about the scene, interrogating, you know, what it's about, what the intentions are. And also watching the actors, you know, instinctively how they're moving because, I, you know, you're creating stuff that's absolutely taking all of their inspiration. You're not imposing something. Um, invariably, the actor and directors find the shape of the scene already through rough blocking from those conversations and then once we get into the choreography then I'll get up agree touch that's very important having an icebreaker agreeing all areas you'll be kissing today are you happy to kiss where you're going to touch where's yes where's no and then working really clearly with everywhere in agreement and consent choreographing really clearly giving them a really firm physical structure so that everything's known the actors are happy and then and then I can step back you have your crew showing and then into the performing of the scene and again it's Lenny's direction I would perhaps just say oh you know I don't quite believe that or you know you need he needs to move down a bit so you really believe that there's intercourse happening there but other than that again I'm just supporting and making sure yes at that point also when it's been filmed I'll be making sure that the actors' nudity clauses, their agreement and consent of what can be seen and what can't be seen is honoured and working closely with the script supervisor, making sure that if anything's seen that's not suitable, that we, but we write saying, okay, I'm, you, know, you can use that take up until that moment and other, other than that, you know, to be deleted. And genital coverings, that's part of your job, something that most of us don't have to worry about in their jobs. Yes, it was very funny, actually. I was on um, one of my workshops. I had a stunt coordinator who came with the idea of possibly being a intimacy coordinator. And by the second day, he came back and said, do you know what? I don't want to be going to wardrobe or going to an actress and saying, are you happy with this genital covering? So he said, do you know what? I'm going to integrate this practice into my work and I, will, I don't want to go there. So yes, obviously it's all pretend. You know, we're making sure that for those intimate scenes, the actors are as covered as possible. So we have, you know, genitalia patches and genitalia pouches, which is the least an actor will wear. But then I will also have the whole degree, like flesh-coloured G-strings or dance belts, flesh-coloured um, pants or shorts, flesh-coloured um, camisole tops, so that we have a whole degree of layers so that the actors are always as covered and as comfortable as possible and working closely with what the actors are comfortable with on that day and in that moment and for that take. And these camera angles are adjusted and changed depending on what is in their agreement and consent in that moment you know, the statement sort of consent is not a point in time, but it's a continuous process. So, yeah, so we're there just supporting the actors and then working in conjunction with what's required for the angle for that scene as to what can what can be worn and what can't. And then working closely with the, the wardrobe team and the just absolutely fantastic on this on this job. We're so experienced, you know, working clearly again, you know, so that you know nudity is only from action to cut. So, you know, they're covered so they, you know, and that whole process is just worked very seamlessly with a great respect so that the actors 
feel really comfortable with how, you know, how they're treated throughout the whole production. Just thinking about the really amazing and very long sex scenes in Normal People, like I don't think I've ever seen anything like it, um, especially not on Irish television, um, which I think is why we have the big uh, live line for Rory. I don't know if you had the pleasure of listening to that exchange. But what I do think, watching it as a viewer, just uh, how amazing it was to see such lovely, generous, loving, consensual sex depicted on television, because I think a lot of the time when we see sex, it's uh, things being done to women or in very often can be quite violent or, you know, just not consensual. And I think that's what was really unusual about it. And it also looked very real. I know you were saying that um, it isn't real and you had pouches and all that kind of thing. But I, I mean, I felt like I was watching somebody. And I suppose that's the amazing thing you do, I suppose. Yes, that is the idea that you it's it's um you know you think it's all real, but it's none of it's real. It's all pretend. It's acting. That scene in episode two, as it happens, we actually shot that towards the very end of the first block. So it's actually one of the last scenes that I worked on with Lenny, which was also great because it was such an important scene, and we were all aware of how important that scene was. You know, Lenny also would film in in long takes so that with each camera angle, the actors actually went through the whole arc of the scene. So Paul and Daisy, their, their skill, their tenacity, their concentration, their, their just embodied in character was just so, so incredible and so beautiful. And I really watched them sort of build and build as, as, as actors, you know, and then it threw into the work in the second block with Hetty. So both how they shot, they shot in those beautiful long arcs of a whole, of a whole scene, and then um, I love it. I love that the writing that um, that while Marianne's character is is the one who hasn't yet had a you know a first time sexual in, encounter or her sexual awakening, that she's the one that's offering. She's the one that's asking to take their clothes off. I absolutely love the beat also that you come back after they've first taken their clothes off and they're just standing opposite each other. And then I also love, which I think in a way is more you know, so that it hasn't been seen so much as then him reaching forward and pleasuring her and seeing her receiving that. And then that reciprocated, her reaching forward and pleasuring him and seeing his pleasure. I love that moment. But again, as an intimacy coordinator, that's all written. It's all there. I'm just honouring and helping to bring them clear choreography so those beats are clearly depicted. And it's just fantastic. And I'm really proud of helping to facilitate a another scene that I feel is is a really positive role model for to have out in the world for our young people. You know, one of the scenes on sex education, um, the, the masturbation montage, again, before as we were preparing to film that scene, we all were aware what an important scene that is, um, not just for that programme, but for young women in the world to normalise and to, you know, to have a really positive role model and this scene as well. So in, in the moment, we're just focusing on doing the best of this scene. But then when you stand back and you realise actually there's something, you know, greater that's, that's been able to be depicted and be such um, something that's so positive um, and a good teaching tool for, um, for our young people. Um, and I'm just thinking about uh, Paul and Daisy, Paul Meskel and Daisy Edgar-Jones. I mean, it must have been such a comfort. I mean, maybe that's the wrong word, but I presume you were such a support to them that they individually and together could come to somebody and talk through their any issues they had and that kind of thing. I'd say you get quite a good relationship with them over the time yeah, of filming. Absolutely. Yes, this is it. Just as a stunt coordinator or choreographer, you know, I'm supporting and helping to bring a really clear language, physical language, to that aspect of the storytelling 
And again, all of us, you know, before I, you know, you know, and again, Paul and, and Daisy and Lenny have all spoken about, you know, in this, in the book, the beauty and the real transcendental connection that they have is through their intimate expression and actually where there's a mismatch and where there's that, that um, inability to communicate clearly then is, you know, their, whatever background that they have, that they're not able to then to say what they need outside of that intimate expression. And then that sends them off and sends them into, into different, um, you know, journeys and that frustration of all of that happening. So, um, so all of us were so aware that all of that intimate expression was so important and, and none of it was gratuitous. And also, as Sally says, and that's exactly, you know, what's so gorgeous is that that's, you know, from my journey as, um, you know, as you've heard from a dancer into an actor myself into movement, but, but it's always about why is this scene there? That is, it, is, it is taking you from the dialogue into the physical furthering of the storytelling so everybody knew that. Everybody knew that um, that that was so important. And so then, therefore, I, you know, it was just an inherent part of the production. This um, production absolutely needed an intimacy coordinator, and I feel um, incredibly blessed that they called me in to work on it. And then my own, you know, personal background of just coming, you know, from a complete Irish stock and the whole dynamic of these families, I just knew it in my bones as well. And so it felt very special to me to be able to be back in Ireland and serving the storytelling. And then what did you think of the live line for Rory and chat? So to be honest, um, I'm surprised that there wasn't more um, people commenting on, yeah, that open uh, sexual expression. I think it's a beautiful part of the book that it's so embedded in, our, in the Irish culture, but there's not a single mention of religion. And I think that's, that, that while it's so completely inherently Irish, it takes off that layer and, and allows the exploration just to be of people and of people and people's dynamics. And I think that's so important and so freeing and so beautiful. And of course, I completely understand, you know, everybody of my parents' generation finding it um, confronting. And, you know, those comments, you know, what, what has it said? Um, you know, it's encouraging young women to get pregnant. And I'm thinking, well, actually, if you look properly, it's the reverse. It's actually a really healthy um, depiction of asking for consent, about asking for protection, about that protection being, you know, sort of absolutely honoured and um, and that care and consideration. I completely respect all those people for who it was confronting um, and that's an older generation and that's why Sally's writing is, is so important because it really is the voice of the new generation. And that live line conversation came before any of the more challenging sexual scenes. So if we talk about the BDSM and the kind of rough um, sexual uh, scenes depicted I presume even more so for someone like Daisy Edgar Jones someone like you is crucial to have at those points because you're depicting something that's very very difficult. Absolutely and going into that there was a great duty of care and focus on the storytelling as we got got into that part of the um, emotional journey of these characters both for Daisy playing Marianne about where she goes to and how she feels about herself and her lack of confidence and and then therefore her choosing to have partners with that sexual expression that, that was a reflection of how she felt on the inside. So that was very much what we spoke about. So Hetty MacDonald obviously directed the second block and her clarity was absolutely brilliant when I first met with her to start discussing these scenes, that clarity of actually these are scenes of, again, consenting adults choosing to engage in the BDSM 
qualities of, of um, intimate expressions with each other, that they are consenting adults, of which there still is a really healthy code. There's a code of, okay, now I want it to stop. And what their code was, you'd be, I'm going to have a shower or whatever it was. And then within, within that choice to explore that, just again, really showing how important it was that it was an outer depiction of Marianne's inner personal feelings about herself. Of course, we see from how her family treats her and in particular, um, how her brother treats her. And then that's just a continuation of actually, you know, perhaps almost what's more comfortable to her because that's what she's experienced. And then that's why the relationship with Connell is so special is because it shows her how valued she is and how loved she really is. So it was really important that that was, yeah, again, that all of it was honoured and those kind of conversations were what we had. And then really, really clearly, again, we had a rehearsal period before we even went into that block, you know, so that everything was choreographed, everything was known with all the actors. And then that was supported into then the performing of the scenes. This might seem like a bit of a trivial one, but how important was Connell's chain as you got involved in these sex scenes? Because I have to say, I don't know what it is about that chain, but even before I knew it had its own Twitter account, it was really, yeah, it really jumped out. And I don't know what that says about us, that a a silver chain was like, oh God, it added to it in a lot of ways. Discuss Connell's chain. Well, can you believe I hadn't noticed even Connell's chain through all of the months of of performing? (laughs) That is amazing. And I I love that it's taken on this status and life of its own. And I was contemplating it the other day and I was thinking that it gives gives an, an objective, you know, talk about objectification. It gives an object for all of that beautiful outpouring of desire and passion that this story has elicited in people and the fact that it's the story um you know that the tv series has come out the irony you know the height of our lockdown period where particularly you know i feel very lucky that i'm living here with my family with my partner my two children and my my daughter's girlfriend so i still have that physical contact and that vibrancy in the house but i really feel for people who are living by themselves or perhaps have partners that they're you know not able to be with so i think that's partly why this you know this it was always going to be beautiful but I think the height of of the resonance that it's it's captured it with people around the globe is partly because of that and then perhaps just this chain is a personification of of that desire I don't know but I think it's a great thing and it's it's very funny and um and I love it I love it I'm I'm still getting over the fact that it didn't factor in your in your um, coaching or coordination at all. That's amazing because actually, when he was talking to the counselor in the last episode I watched, the chain is visible there too. And I think it's about his um, you know, it's it's the masculinity, femininity, and the vulnerability. I think is what it is. It also brings there's a sexual element, but there's also just a reminder that he is struggling with his feelings and trying to express himself. And the chain kind of personifies that a little bit for me as well. That's all my own stuff. <laughs> but also, I, I think, so, so first of all, I have to say about that scene in the, the counsellor, that the counsellor is played by Nomadism Wayne, who I actually have known. I, I co-wrote a play when my daughter was one with seven women. And she came and um, when we did the play reading, she played one of those parts and that was in 2003. And um, Noma is just phenomenal. And, you know, rightly, Connell, you know, Paul's uh, portrayal is amazing. But I know, uh, you know, that the quality that Noma brings to the role of the counsellor um, is, is just so sublime and, and holding that space that, that invites and allows. And, and, you know, the character allows space 
and how Noma holds that is just is just fantastic and fills my heart. But there's there's something about the chain. Like I think there's something about the consistency. There's constant. You know, if you think that you're watching this character from their you know year twelve at school right the way through until their third year at university, and it's a constant. And I think that for me, there's something about the constant of his beautiful love from his mother. While the mother is, you know, a single mum and, you know, she, she, she jokes saying, oh, she, you know, she, you were my mistake when I was 18. But that constant fundamental love that underpins who he is. You know, so he has his different challenges around how he feels about himself and himself in the world because of his upbringing. But that constant from the mother and how that there's something about. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's beautiful about that chain that it that it. Um, you know, doesn't shift and change to different chains. And I like the fact that it's silver. It's not gold. It's not blinging. I do as well. I wouldn't like it if it was gold. I wouldn't have anything to do with it. Just thinking about how normal people then has, uh, I suppose, I imagine with the global success of it, um, you're more in demand than ever. But also the fact that you you now train intimacy coordinators as well. It's kind of incredible that something you would have never thought you would end up doing, I imagine, when you were a ballet person and when you were acting, that this career has opened up for you at this stage of your life and is now, I suppose, taking off. What does it look like now? Are there some directors who still think they don't want someone like you on the set? Are you still having to make a case for it? How how much will normal people help with that? A great part of what I'm doing still absolutely is advocacy, is speaking on panels, is sharing the work, people that say, you know, I don't, I've never heard of this role before. I've shared the work in Berlin, did my first workshop in Berlin um, in March last year. And then I was just talking, one of my intimacy coordinators in training is, you know, working there. But as yet, you know, producers are just beginning to go, actually, yes, now we need this. But of course, then there's a lack of actual intimacy coordinators in Germany in order to, um, to then fulfill the need that is now being recognised. So it does feel a huge task to ignite the world, to, to share, you know, the shift in um, in how, how we can do intimate content and the fact we now have a professional, clear structure and a skill. But yes, now we need to train people up. But the thing is, I need to be really, really robust and really, really vigilant with, with who I train up. It's, it's, a, it's a role where in the last week, again, doing a couple of talks and really talking about, you know, as I've spoken with you, my journey and all the skills that I'm bringing to holding that space. In between times, um, in between dancing and acting, I also actually was had a moment where I thought I might be an alternative therapist and I learned holistic massage, on-site massage, reflexology. Um, so there's all of that I bring to it as well. You know, and I'm saying to my intimacy coordinators in training, you know, because I'm saying you need to say you're in training and it takes time. You know, so I can share the skills, but then you need to put it in practice, be it in teaching the work from workshops, in drama schools, in a profession, or intimacy coordination for theatre, or intimacy coordination for filming, be it TV or film. It takes time. You have to have experience. You need to be shadowing people. You need to, and again, you know, the the greatest learning of the work is and on beautiful productions like Normal People, where the work's understood and it's supported with beautiful practitioners across the board. And the challenge is when people don't want it, you know, and that thing of you're offering a structure and then people are going to mix and match. They're going to go, I want that bit of it, but I don't want that bit of it. And how do you hold that space? How do you make sure what's the bottom line? As I said to you, what's the bottom line when a producer says, we don't want that, that bit of it? Agreement and consent has to be there. So at the moment... That's part of what I'm doing now. My next three weeks is robustly then um, becoming conscious and writing out really clearly the structure of all the skills that, that, that are needed 
how I'm putting in place that training and then through to a robust accreditation. So I'm not yet there yet. So if any intimacy coordinator from Intimacy On Set says they're accredited, they're not because I'm, I'm doing it. And, I, and I'm saying trust the profession or the industry knows that it's a young profession and I'm working with integrity, with authenticity, with all my intimacy coordinators in training. I've got a fantastic intimacy coordinator in Dublin, Rashino Donovan, who um, who's one of my yeah, main intimacy coordinators um, in Dublin. And I've got more and I'm working closely with Shimmy Marcus at Bow Street Film School and Gronya Bennett at Screen Skills Ireland. And then with Siobhan Burke at the Irish Theatre Institute in order to continue training and creating really good practitioners so that the industry can be supported. Listening to you, it's clear there's such a, a lot of activism in what you do. It's a mix. It's obviously a profession, but the thing you're doing is trying to change this very archaic, in a way, uh, approach to to sex and films. One thing we haven't mentioned, which I know is important and I haven't thought of before, but menstruation for for female actors. You know, I was thinking Daisy Edgar Jones, you know, she might not want to be doing that when she has her period or whatever else. But that's something that probably wasn't taken into account before the likes of you got involved. That's right. I say, you know, there's there's um, things that I'm, the conversations that I have with the production right from the get-go. Um, and when I haven't mentioned it, then it's always scuppered. So we're like one of the other things that I'm saying is if there's either um, a heterosexual sex scene or a queer um, lesbian sex scene, consider the gender parity in the crew of the closed set. If you've got nothing but a male crew and you've got a heterosexual sex scene, you'll have one lone female with nothing but men around her doing this vulnerability of um, you know, intimate content. But it's too late to mention it you know, on the day or the week even. You need to mention it way back then so that that can be um, considered and put in place. So the same you know, with our actresses if they're, they're menstruating. Obviously, it makes a huge difference if an actress is, you know, menstruating or not when they come to do the intimate content. So I'm saying to productions, ask your actresses of when their menstrual cycle is. Try and jot it down and then put in place best endeavours to schedule the intimate content, you know, when they're mid-cycle so they're not menstruating. As ever, you know, even with productions that really consider that, things go wrong, scenes get shifted and changed around or an actress can get stressed and their period's late but the thing is that when those sorts of things are just part of the conversation, it means that then if it does fall on that, then again, there's just that openness. And, you know, we can quietly and discreetly, with respect, take care because it's an added vulnerability, isn't it? So really, really important. And I'm really proud of that. And then also, you know, then to balance that up to the other side of it is, you know, it's natural and normal with two people doing a rhythm, intimate content with each other for people to get aroused. For a lady, it's not so obvious, but for a man, obviously, it's not suitable to be in the workplace with an erection. So that's um, that's another thing, just to have, again, that open conversation. It's natural, it's normal. We put in place a timeout so the actors have the autonomy to halt the action in intimate content. And again, you don't need to know why. There needs to be no reason. You know, you just the actor might go, OK, timeout, halt. We put in safe words, it might be Guinness or Wakanda. So again, it's just allowing us to be open, professional, adult, to normalise, you know, who we are as human beings and um, and to, for all of that to be taken care of in a professional way so that we can all make the best art, make the best work possible. 
I don't know if the safe word was actually Guinness, but I have this image of Paul Meskel shouting it anyway in the middle of one of the scenes. And I'm going to keep that. I like it. Um, listen, finally, what's next for you? Obviously, training all these people who aren't accredited yet, and it's a long process. But are there other projects that have come knocking on your door now because of the success of normal people that you can talk about, perhaps? Well, uh, there was a whole load of productions that I was in, you know, with either I myself was working on or my fellow intimacy coordinators were working on. Um, there's another one foundation in, in Ireland. Um, I, was, I was due literally to come to Dublin to be working on a, a film in Dublin. I should have flown on the Friday. We were told it was all called a halt and I should have flown out on the Sunday. So I'm just about to start connecting with all of those productions and seeing what the timescale is as to when they can start coming back. Yeah, you asked earlier, will normal people and then the narrative and, and the publicity around normal people make a difference? For me, I really feel that it has been a watershed, that this production has put in place the best of the integration and the process of the interview guidelines, working with in conjunction of, you know, the production, the whole of production, the director, and so therefore seeing the kind of intimate content that can be produced from that. So I do feel, and I hope that out in the industry, that there will be a, a trust and a aha moment and a realisation, oh, okay, that's what they're talking about. And actually, that's we can trust this new profession, and that um, and perhaps the conversations can be different when when um when everything starts back up. So that's my hope. Of course, though, is this the end of the sex scene? What about social distancing? I mean, are we not allowed to do it anymore on screen? How's that going to work out? <laughs> so yes, I was just thinking that as I was saying that. So of course, then as intimacy coordinators, that's the next thing is post COVID world, and of course, I've got my intimacy coordinators in Australia, and New Zealand. And they're, you know, they they've managed the lockdown and everything so efficiently that they are now opening back up again, and productions are, are filming. And that's actually one of, you know, part of the conversation this morning is those intimacy coordinators in training are in with those conversations and being part of bringing uh, supporting productions to bring together robust practices and protocols to make sure that the health and safety of everybody in production, crew as well as actors, is put in place. And we're very aware that there's different choices that can be made. So it can either be like an ongoing soap is looking at just rewriting. So there's intimate content, but not through to, to intimacy and touch. So they can have those storytelling still happening. But then we've got other productions where they've been able to really clearly test and, and isolate their actors. So there is complete safety in them coming to set to rehearse into intimate content. So what's important for us as intimacy coordinators and for the profession to trust that, that particularly the the role of um, helping to facilitate open communication and transparency and having that conversation with the actor. So again, it's that thing to make sure that no actor is coerced. You know, we um, with the agreement and consent, you know, I always say your no is a gift. We want to know what's not suitable for you. And then I say your no is your no, your yes is your yes, and your maybe is a no. Because as soon as you're unsure, you can't be free as the actor. So intimacy coordinators can help facilitate that communication if an actor might be concerned at all about their health, that that can be communicated and shared with the production and then the best practice put in place and perhaps it might mean changing how the scene might be. So we're helping to be part of that narrative, supporting productions and being, you know, it's, it's about being responsive to each and every production, how they're working and, um, and making sure again that best practice is put in place, agreement and consent is a constant and nobody's coerced or, or um, sort of feel that they, they might be compromised by something that they might be asked to do. 
Well, I just want to say congratulations and thank you very much for everything you did on Normal People. I really think uh, you've done a great service to people because we don't see enough of it. Like I said, just beautiful, consensual, loving sex depicted on TV, especially not in Ireland. And I think what has been a revelation for people is how much they've enjoyed it and not in a kind of, you know, weird uh pornographic way but just appreciating because we don't learn in schools here about sexual joy it's always the negative side of sex and I think normal people has just brought that to the fore how you know the joy should be there and that's important and and it can be in young people and it can be in first-time sexual experiences and so thank you very much and yeah I'm look forward to seeing what else you end up doing Ita. Look out, look out. The next production is um, a thing called I May Destroy You that, again, completely different, but again, another production I'm so proud to have supported. It's an amazing woman called Michaela Cole who's written it, co-directed and starring and executive producing. And again, it's there's some groundbreaking scenes. So, yes, yeah, so look out for that. But thank you, because um, I agree, our sexual loving, you know, <laughs> we love and how we express that is the pinnacle of the beauty of us as 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 you know a human being i'm so delighted to hear you say that so thank you i just think that's the part of the reason it's made a lot of people have that nostalgia people like older like me uh looking back on our intimate relationships from a younger age and perhaps in some ways appreciating them in other ways wishing it could have been different but reevaluating things you know and being allowed to have that space through what marianne and connell do we can kind of look at our own stuff as well so i'm really hoping that for young people in ireland that for them at the start of their sexual journeys that it's going to have a fantastic positive impact on them so that's why i do think what you do is activism in a in a kind of strange way it is it is Oh, and that just filled me with joy. So thank you. Thank you Great. so much. Well, Isha, thanks a million. And hopefully we'll come back and talk to you again for another production. And that's it for today. Thanks to my guest, Ito O'Brien. And remember, please do get in touch with anything you'd like us to cover. And do follow us on Instagram at IT Women's Podcast. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, stay safe and thanks very much for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.